We'll go today to the Hebrew Psalter, Psalm, uh, the book of Psalms. There are five books in the book of Psalms. There are 150 Psalms in our Bibles that are not really in chronological order. Psalm 90 was the one that was written first. It was written by Moses, and it begins with God's eternal past. Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. And then about a thousand years later, the last Psalm was penned, Psalm 126. And it ends with the call to look ahead to a time of rejoicing over seeing people saved. He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. And so in between those thousand years are all these psalms that have been written and put together. And have been a great encouragement to many, not just as they were sung by the Hebrew people, but as we read them today and sing some of them, a great encouragement to our hearts. Well, Psalm 1 was chosen to be placed first. It's the gateway into the Psalms. And as one might enter into a church, perhaps for a wedding, you're usually asked, are you a friend of the bride or a friend of the groom? I feel sorry for those brides that are uh, in Colorado or some distant place because uh, there aren't many friends of the groom that are there. And so uh, well, any side will be fine. But here, we're confronted with this question, are you godly or ungodly? Are you righteous or unrighteous? And that's the issue as you enter into the, the whole psaltery. How, how will I approach the one to whom all these songs are written? Am I a believer in him? Am I righteous? Am I godly? Because of Christ's righteousness, not by my own works, but because I've been saved and he's imputed to me his righteousness. Or do I come in in an ungodly way? And so this psalm brings us to that issue. And I think that's why it's placed first. The chapter was not just written to men. On Father's Day, you might think, what's a good Father's Day text? I'll just go and they'll be preaching it, Dad. But no, these, uh, this message is to all of us. And these two paragraphs describe the two men, two paths, and two destinies. The righteous man is described in verses 1 through 3, the first paragraph, and then the ungodly man in, in verses 4 through 6. Notice that the righteous man, the end of verse 3, shows his destination, he'll prosper. The ungodly man, at the end of verse 6, we read, shall perish. So let's look at the first four words of the psalm will be our title for today, Blessed is the Man. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Let's look first of all at the righteous or the godly man. The godly man is described as one who's blessed. What does it mean to be blessed? are two Hebrew words that are translated into our English word blessed or blessed. First is Asher. Asher is the one that's used here. 
Another is Barak. Barak is, is a pronouncement of blessing on someone. It's something that you don't deserve, but someone outside of yourself has made that pronunciation. It's an outside source. It's used of God's pr pronouncing of a blessing on a righteous nation uh, or a righteous man in, in Psalm 5, verse 12. For thou, O Lord, uh, wilt bless the righteous with favor, wilt thou compass him as with a shield. It's used for a man who calls on his own soul to bless the Lord in Psalm 103, verse 1. Bless the Lord, Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. And so Asher is that word that's found here. And although the word is, is used here, is Asher, Jeremiah uses the other word, Barak, as in, in a parallel passage. Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 7 and 8. And there it's, blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord, Barak, and whose hope the, in whose hope the Lord is. For he shall be as a tree planted by the waters, and that spreadeth out her roots by the river, and shall not see when heat cometh. But her leaf shall be green, and shall not be careful or afraid in the year of drought, neither shall cease from yielding fruit. So the godly person who trusts in the Lord is not only blessed, happy, he is also blessed by God. So the lines that Fanny Crosby wrote in Blessed Assurance are, are biblically accurate. Perfect submission, all is at rest. I and my Savior am happy, Asher, and blessed, Barak. The word Asher describes a state of being. It's based on something that you do. If you do this, then you will be happy. It's used more of an emotion that is within us than from a pronouncement of something from without. It's used three times in Psalm 84, blessed are they that dwell in thy house. And so we see the, the activity that brings that, that uh, state of being, that state of happiness. We dwell in his house. In verse 5, blessed is the man who trusteth in thee, or whose strength is in thee. Psalm 84.12, O Lord of hosts, blessed is that man that trusteth in thee. And so Psalm 84 uses it three times and, and talks about that, uh, that, that joy that we have in Christ. The tense of the verb here in Psalm 1 is, uh, implies that it's a constant state. He is continually blessed. He is, he is continually happy. It's also in the plural in Psalm 1.1. 1, 1. Uh, blessed is, is plural. And it's not a plural of, of new numbers, but a plural that intensifies uh, the, the word. And so we might translate that, how utterly blessed is the man. How utterly happy. Our world is obsessed with wanting to be happy. They want to appear happy when they take their pictures, their selfies, and put them on social media. They want everybody to know how happy they are. Um, they think if I, if I have something, if I do something, if I eat something, it will make me happy. If I, if I look a certain way, then everyone will think that I, I really am happy. Happiness is not found in activities or possessions or pleasures or things that we do. Anything that this life has to offer, real happiness is, is, is more of a byproduct that God gives us along the road of service. If you live to be happy, you'll be miserable. If you live to please Christ, 
you will all of a sudden discover on that pathway of living to please him that you are content, you are happy. C.S. Lewis writes, We try to be our own masters as if we had created ourselves. Then we hopelessly strive to invent some sort of happiness for ourselves outside of God, apart from God. And out of that hopeless attempt has come human history. The long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. So the question that we ask is not, am I happy? But am I living my life for the glory of God? And this psalm tells you how to walk that pathway. The godly man is blessed, first of all, because of what he avoids, verse 1. Blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. John Phillips says, Modern psychology tells us to emphasize the positive. God begins by emphasizing the negative. The happy, happy man is marked by the things he does not do, the places where he does not go, the books he does not read, the movies he does not watch, by the company he does not keep. God begins this book not with the power of positive thinking, but with the power of negative thinking. There are a lot of things that he does not do. Three are mentioned. Look at the verbs in verse 1. Walketh, standeth, sitteth. Taken together, they show a progression. If you walk with the unrighteous, you will find yourself standing with sinners and eventually sitting with those who are scorners. Lots well, a great example of a man who set out walking with sinners. In Genesis 13:12, it says that he pitched his tent toward Sodom. And every morning as he would come out of that tent, he would open it up and there was Sodom in front of his eyes. According to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 8, it says that Lot vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. He was among them, and yet he was vexed. He vexed his own righteous soul. And that's the way it is with a person who claims to be a Christian but is trying to satisfy themselves with what the world has to offer. The word vexed is translated torment in Matthew 8, 6. The man who came and said, Lord, my servant lieth at home at sick of the palsy, grievous, grievously tormented. It's also used for tossed. The waves of the sea are tossed in the middle of the storm in Matthew 14, 24. That's how, how Lot lived while he was in Sodom. And when he tried to warn his family about God's righteous judgment that was coming, it says in Genesis 19, 14, he seemed as one that mocked unto his sons-in-law. So the righteous man is marked by where he does not go. Uh, three places he does not go, the council, the way, or the seat. He never goes to get counsel from the ungodly. Counsel, or uh, we would say the same thing today, your advice. Who are your advisors? Where do you go for help, for answers? We need to stop relying on someone just because they're a good attorney. We need to ask if they are a believer. Stop voting for ungodly politicians. Stop looking for ungodly advice when you have decisions to make. Let's go for God for wisdom. In James, he tells us that he gives liberally to all men. So we ask of him. Some, uh, Proverbs 15, 7 
The lips of the wise disperse knowledge, but the heart of the foolish doeth not so. Don't go to the counsel from the ungodly. And notice the way of sinners. The way indicates here the path of their lives. What are men living for today? What paths are they taking? What are they pursuing? Two verses that we looked at in Proverbs on Wednesday night echo the same warning. They, they, except for one word, they're identical. There is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. We need to make sure we're on the right path. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Be careful of what way you're on. What seat? He doesn't sit in the seat of the scornful. When you sit here, it, it talks about a dwelling place more, more than just I'm going to sit here and just take a rest and then I'm going to keep on going. But it's permanent residence, a place where God warns us not to live. 2 Corinthians 6.14 warns about being unequally yoked together with unbelievers. We generally think of that as in a marriage situation, but any kind of a business relationship it will apply to, any relationships that are close in this life, we need to be careful not to yoke up with those who are unbelievers. There are three friendships he doesn't make. The ungodly, the sinners, and the scornful. The ungodly are those who try to live their lives apart from or in opposition to, to God, to who he is. Sinners, their actions are against the standards of right and wrong that God has clearly laid out in, in his word, the Bible. Their thoughts are evil. They don't conform to the will of God. We, again, we, we love sinners like Christ did. We have to be able to communicate to them the love of God, the love of Christ. But we're... Some have said, we're in the world, but not of the world. They need to know that you're not their friend because you agree with them and you enjoy doing everything that they do. You, you are with them as a friend because you want them to come to Christ. And the scornful. The scorner in the Bible is the person who ridicules God, who mocks God's word, who despises God's people. Out of the three, the ungodly, the sinners, and the scorners, the scorner is the worst. Proverbs 9, 7 tells us that he can't be corrected. He that reproveth a scorner getteth himself shame, and he that rebuketh a wicked man getteth himself a blot. So you won't experience happiness, the blessings of God in your life, if you walk in the counsel of the ungodly, if you stand in the way of sinners, if you sit in the seat of the scornful. A godly man is blessed because of what he avoids. He's also blessed because of what he embraces. Verse 2, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. What does the godly man embrace? The law of the Lord. Now, here in the, in the, in the scriptures, the Old Testament would be referring to the first five books of the law, the scriptures that they had. Literally, it says, uh, but only in the law of Jehovah is his delight. There is a qualifier there that we don't see in our, in our translation. But only. Nothing delights you like God's word. You may enjoy a lot of things as a Christian. Things that are helpful. Things that are good. But nothing cheers your heart like God's word. It's your delight. Why do you embrace it? Alexander says it's not merely his employment or his trust, but his pleasure, his happiness. 
It is not merely a theme of speculation or study, but is a cherished object of affection, a favorite subject of thought. That's our emotional embracing of, of God's truth, of God's word. There's also an intellectual uh, aspect here. In his law doth he meditate. The word meditate in Hebrew is hagah. And it's more of a, a sound that someone makes or something makes. It's used of a dove that's cooing. It's used of a lion that's roaring. Often, uh, I was teaching high school, and if we were giving a test or a quiz that day, you'd walk into the room, and I would hear the sounds of students studying and preparing for that test, going over their notes in their mind. I always found it's better to study after a test, because then you know what's going to be on it, but it's too late. <laughs> but that's the, that's the, I think that's the closest sound, as you, as you think about someone that's just ruminating on, and going over and, and mumbling even, trying to remember God's word, repeating it often in your heart and in your mind. Meditation is not like the meditation of Eastern mysticism. They tell you, if you want to follow their teachings, is to empty your mind of all the thoughts. So that's where all of them begin. The Bible, biblical meditation, is filling your thoughts, filling your mind and your heart with God's truth. That's the difference. Notice it says, in his law doth he meditate. It's the, the tense is a future tense. He will continue to meditate. There's never a time in your Christian walk where you say, I've, I've read the Bible through, I've got it down, I know what God wants me to do, now I'm just going to live the rest of my life in, in light of that. No, we continue to meditate on it. We spend time in it. It never gets old. We were reading through the Bible together. Someone came up to me last week and said, you know, I, I read it through already, and I'm, I'm already on my second time through this year. Is that okay? <laughs> Meditating on God's Word. We'll never get enough of it. You'll never regret it. This book will be the, 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 the most important part of your life as you meditate on it day and night. So the godly man is blessed because of what he avoids, because of what he embraces, and also he's placed... Um, he's blessed because of where God puts him, where God places him. Verse 3, he's compared to this tree. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. His position is firm. This growth, this place of his, his planting is not accidental. He doesn't just like a volunteer plant, wherever that seed happens to lie, just grows up. It was, this tree was placed somewhere, deliberately, specifically in a location that's best suited for his growth. And I'm so glad that God does that for every believer. He doesn't just leave you stranded in a dry and barren land. He plants you someplace. I've seen it happen in many lives. Planted by rivers, those are, are channels, possibly even an irrigation system, intentional. It's a place of continual nourishment. So this man's position is firm. There's so many that have both feet planted firmly in midair nowadays when they tell you what they believe, and you're just trying to nail them down. What, what do you believe? What are you trusting? This man's position is firm. His outreach is fruitful. He's productive. He brings forth fruit in his season. Fruit is something that's beneficial to others. The Bible talks about the nine 
fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, they're in groups of three. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. And you will have that in your life if you're planted by those rivers of water. Hebrews 13, 15 says that the fruit of our lips is a sacrifice of praise. That's another thing that brings forth fruit. Our, our mouths bringing glory to God. Other souls that you're able to lead to Christ. Psalm 126, 6, we've mentioned before. You go forth weeping, bearing precious seed, and you'll, you'll come again rejoicing, bringing sheaves with you. His position is firm. His outreach is fruitful. His life is fervent. He's growing. His leaf doesn't wither. One of the first ways that I identify a plant that's not doing well is uh, look at the leaves. It's either not getting enough water or nutrients in the soil. The leaves are the indicator of how healthy the plant is. Here, his leaf won't wither. A godly man will have those external signs that show he's healthy spiritually. His leaves will provide shade for his family. They'll prove that his roots are firmly rooted in, in the truth and in, in the rivers of water there. There's strength in his life. His life is fervent. His work is favorable. Whatsoever he does prospers. Now that's not teaching what is commonly called the prosperity gospel in our day. That is, you can look at a person if they're rich, if they're healthy, if everything's going well for them, they must be living right. And if you look at a person who's poor and who's, who's battling illnesses, then that must be God's judgment on them. Nothing could be further from the truth. Spurgeon writes, Our works are prospered even when everything seems to go against us. It's not outward prosperity which the Christian most desires and values. It's soul prosperity which he longs for. So success in God's eyes, prosperity in God's eyes, is much different than what it is in the world's eyes. But God will prosper you. The godly man is blessed because of what he avoids, what he embraces, and where God has placed him. The ungodly man is just the opposite. Verses 4 through 6. In fact, in the Hebrew, the words not so, we have the ungodly are not so, but not so is in the emphatic position in the, in the verse. It's at the very beginning. Not so. He's not like the tree that stands firmly rooted. He's compared to chaff. Chaff is that winnowed debris that's blown away as the grain falls to the ground on the threshing floors. They would lay the rocks out on the, on the, close to the top of a hill. They were elevated. And the heads of grain were beaten to separate the chaff from the seed. And the grain and the chaff were thrown together by a winnowing fork up into the air, and the night breeze would carry away the chaff, and what would fall back to the ground was the grain that was, that was precious. Chaff isn't. It's irritating. It gets in your eyes. It makes you sneeze. It has to be removed from the other grain. It's light. It's blown away easily in contrast to that tree that remains solid and firm. And God looks at the man who loves his word, who spends time in prayer, who makes sure his family learns to know and to love God, and God says, there's a mighty oak. And he looks at the man who through crooked practices becomes famous or wealthy, 
He spends his energies and time trying to satisfy himself. To the world, he might look successful, but God sees him as chaff. And the breath of divine justice will one day blow, and that chaff will be destroyed. Instead of being rewarded, the ungodly will be punished, verses 5 and 6. The ungodly won't stand in the judgment. That doesn't mean he won't be there, that he won't be judged. It means that when he is judged, he won't be able to stand against the scrutiny of the justice of God. The sinners will not stand in the congregation of the righteous. The hypocrite who appears to be content by going to church and looking on the outside as if he is a Christian and, and believes, but inwardly denies the Lord, he won't be numbered among the righteous. You'll look for him. Where's so-and-so? Oh, he's not there. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. The way of the ungodly will perish. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. That knowledge is not just talk, being uh, talking about intellectual recognition of someone. It's much closer. It's friendship. We have a relationship with God in Christ who said in John 10, 14, I am the good shepherd and know my sheep, and have, and have known of mine. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. But instead of prospering, the ungodly will perish. He will not have eternal life with God in heaven. He'll face eternal destruction in hell. He'll be lost. That word means to be lost, to have no place to flee, to be destroyed. And in the New Testament, God has provided the only remedy he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth on him should not perish, should not perish, but have everlasting life. The godly man is utterly and continually blessed and happy because of what he avoids, what he embraces, where God has planted him. The ungodly man is walking on a path that leads to ruin and destruction. Which path are you on? Let's bow our heads for prayer. So you thought about this psalm, and you say, I, I don't know the Savior. I've never trusted him. I've never confessed my sins and asked him to save me. Now is the time to come to Christ, to trust him for your salvation. Believer, maybe you've been walking with the Lord, and you've never fully surrendered your heart. There's still some areas in your life that you've kept back. Now is the time to surrender your life to him. Only then will you know the lasting joy and the blessing that God promises to those who live for him. Father in heaven, I pray that in the closing moments of this service, our hearts will make decisions. Your word has been a mirror to us. It showed us which side of the aisle we sit on. I pray that today, there will be those who turn to Christ in salvation. There will be those who are living for themselves to realize that it's a wasted life. And the only happiness, the only truly blessed life is one that's walked on your path. So make us, help us make those decisions today. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.